<laughs> that wasn't good. Welcome back to the Reside Platform Podcast. We have back special guest Andy Mulholland of Simple Numbers. I'm Nick McLean, co-founder of Reside, and Andy's the guy that works with top 100 teams across North America when it comes to bookkeeping and financial reporting, all things money. Welcome back, Andy. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, glad to have some more conversations around. Probably not a topic that is super fun for most to dig into, but man, I think when we all think about it, it's what better, more important conversation can a business owner have? So, it, well, here's the thing, Andy. It's, it's, we had lots of great reviews and comments about our last episode. So check that one out about, and, you know, I talked about the five simple numbers that he accounts for and looks at for every business owner that we work with at reside and that you work with, right? right. Five simple yeah, really just, just a way to simplify your profit and loss statement so that it can provide the most amount of value in making business decisions, right? Strategy. So. Well, we see this all the time in real estate is you, you, you're told that you run a business. Yeah. Like we're, we're sold this dream that become a real estate agent and be run your own business. And as a solopreneur, right. It's fairly easy to account for because you just need a personal checking account. Like you make right. a sale, you're with a brokerage, like you put your license on the wall and you have a brokerage, you know, you find a brokerage and you, they pay you a percentage of the split and then out of that re revenue that goes into your account, you kind of do what you want with it. For sure. And sometimes, and it's totally diluted, right? It'll have some business expenses, but you also pay your mortgage with that bank account. You pay for your grocery bill, you know, and all those things. And it just, it's, it's not a business. It's fine to run it that way when you're getting started and you're a solo agent. I did. But there comes a point where we shift, at least some of us, not everyone does, but if you're building it, like a business, there's a shift that has to happen. And I think there's some really important things that you got to, you, you need to, you need to change in the way that you look at your finances uh, in your business, as well as the way that you run the business uh, financially. So what is that shift that needs to take place? Well, I mean, the, the first and probably most obvious thing, but you'd be surprised how many fairly high level teams we work with that don't do this, and that is to set up a business account and funnel the money not from the closing table right to your personal account, but instead through a business account and probably going as far as setting up a true corporation that, uh, you know, the businesses run through. Now, I think this is a really interesting conversation because I, I as a team leader, broker owner, independent brokerage, when agents join my team, part of the value proposition is a business discussion that we're talking about the business. Like why would somebody join a team and pay 50% splits or 65%, right? What is the value they're getting back? Well, a lot of it is explaining to them overhead and expenses and what it actually costs to run a business. Because any agent can go get a hundred percent split in your marketplace, right? So how did you, what, what does that conversation look like in your mind, Andy, as a former team leader, broker owner, when you're talking to a team, to an agent, why would someone join a team versus just going to get a hundred percent split? Well, I mean, it's obvious that it's not about the split. And so that's having that conversation, you know, it's all about how many dollars that that agent can walk away with based on how many hours they put in, right? It's, it's almost a dollar per hour activity mm. conversation, breaking it that far down. Um, you know, I think a lot of people join a team because they're ready, they're hungry, they, they are ready to learn, they're ready to make a ton of money, but they don't want the stress that comes with running the business. And so maybe explaining to them, you know, that side of it, but it's all about you know, creating value in their minds. Um, uh, but what does that mean? Well, showing them that they can make more money in less time on your team than they could at 100%. I love that uh, dollar per hour right. mentality. Because yeah, yeah. I was talking to an agent the other day and, and she was like, hey, I can go to 
XYZ realty and get 100% of my split. And, you know, even though I'll sell less homes, I'll make more per deal. And I was like, well, are you going to factor in all of your expenses that it and costs it takes to acquire a client? What's your cost to acquire a client? Mm-hmm. Well, she's like, I'm going to wait tables. I was like, okay, so <laughs> how much do you make per hour waiting tables? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to wait tables to pay my desk fee. See, everybody, she, a desk fee is, uh, de- is where you pay a certain amount per month and in return you get a split. A better split. I said, okay, right. so you're going to work for $20 an hour so that you could pay a desk fee. So how much are you paying? How much are you making per hour? Cause you have to factor in that waiting the tables, like right. you said, right? Right. And is that really what you want to do? Yeah. And when they see it, they don't. The other part of it, the money side is one thing, but just the risk liability, monthly overhead stress, right? That's a whole nother form of value that you can provide for them you know, uh, and you're taking that on. And so there's all those types of conversations that can be had. I remember what we did is we had a a sheet of paper when we talked to new agents coming in and we'd literally list out everything we spent money on and the value associated with those things. Mm. And it could be as simple as having a courier that would do the signs for them, having a professional photographer that we'd pay for on the listings we'd take, whatever it was like literally listing out everything and assigning a dollar value and at the bottom having a cumulative total. And it was actually amazing just from a dollar perspective, not the other stress and overhead and all those things we talked about, strictly dollar perspective, the amount of value that we bring to these agents, you know, when they, when they join our team. And so that's a huge part of it for sure. Well, yeah, if you, if you truly could value stack your services to the agent, it will exceed how much they pay out. It will ex- oh, yeah. it will far exceed anything. I mean, right. if you look at a transaction coordinator, a call center, right. lead, how much do you spend on lead gen, office space, right? Oh yeah, office the- office supplies, you know, listing coordinators, couriers, photographers, and do you put a right. dollar value per month? Right. It would be shocking. It'll be shocking. And what's funny is like, that's just the hard dollar cost. I, I, I used to tell team leaders that would struggle in seeing the value. Sometimes they didn't see the value in joining their own team. They didn't believe in the value. Well, one of the things you can do is look at the hard dollars you're spending, but it's not just about the money you're spending either, right? I'm the money guy. I'm, I look, I do bookkeeping for real estate teams, but there's so much more value you bring as a team leader. Just the fact that they have you by their side, the fact that they have your cell phone number, the fact that you know their goals, the fact that you care about them personally, we all know that that can have a huge impact on a productivity of a person. And without that person or that, you know, coach or group of friends you have, whatever, but just the relationship you have with someone who cares, knows about you, cares about you, and wants to pour into you, the value of that is unbelievable. The accountability. We used to have morning huddles. The fact that my agents had to show up and do a morning huddle was worth tens of thousands of dollars to their annual income. Not because I was anything special for them to see in the morning, but just the fact that we all did it together. Mm. And so that's the power truly of the, of the team beyond the money you spent. You know, I hear a lot of team leaders say, well, I, I need to just buy more leads and then I can bring more agents in. No. No, 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 no. You're missing the point. You don't see the true value in what you can provide these agents. And that's number one. We got to get that dialed in. Yeah. And I always always like the thought of when you're on a team or a brokerage that has a lead product or a lead system or services that can increase the the number of units you can do every year, right? What you're doing is you're could you make, could you sell 20 homes on my team? Okay. And make a hundred thousand dollars. Yes, for sure. I see that happening. Could you also go somewhere else and sell 10 homes and make the same amount of money? Absolutely. Right. Cause you can go get a hundred percent split and do it all yourself. Now, the thing about it is you got to do everything. So you're making less per dollar. Like you said, Andy, mm-hmm. you're taking on more risk and what's your risk tolerance look like? And you have less, your database 
and referrals will be fewer in the future. So let me explain. You will be selling more homes with our company, and in five years, you'll sell 100 homes, which means you have 100 past clients. And statistically, I can show you how many referrals you're going to be getting. So raise your hand if you'd like more referrals in the future, right? Do you want more people that like, know, like, and trust you that are going to just hand you business? Like, do you want to work by referral in the future? They all say yes. Oh, oh yeah, I want to work by referral. Oh, awesome. Okay. So in, in five years, you're going to have 100 clients. And I can show you how many referrals you're going to get. If you go do it this other way, yeah, you only have to sell 10, 10 a year, but you're only you're going to have half as many referrals. So it's going to take you twice as long to get to the point in which you can run your business based on referrals. Right. Do you want to wait that long? So I'm a pathway to get you to what you want in the future quickly. Now, it's my goal to hopefully retain you and build a relationship in which you want to stay. But I understand if there's ever a point in the future. As a team leader, I don't like pretend that there's not going to be a day in which you're going to consider leaving. Right. It's my job as the owner to figure out a way for opportunity to keep you. And I think I think a lot of times team leaders and things, they think, okay, I'll have, well, can I keep them forever? You know, or how does that look? No, the relationship worked really well for what you did. Did that spur any thought to you, Andy, in terms of the way you thought about it or the way you see yeah, it? Yeah, it did. I, you know, I thought of it. I, it's, here's the thing is that I'm seeing, and I learned this through looking at people's financials, there are different models that people are running. And their mindset around what you just talked about changes depending on the model. Ooh. There are models that are a very low profit margin. If I look through a P&L statement and I can see that they have a very high cost of goods sold, which meaning they they pay a lot out in agent split, they don't spend a lot of money because they don't have much left, and they keep just a small margin, and maybe they have a huge number of agents or multiple locations. So their dollar amount they make is still really pretty good, but it's just a very small percentage of the total revenue. They think about what you said a little differently. Ugh. They think... I'm not going to really care about the agent. It's all about bringing more in and some are going to leave and then I'll bring more in and some are going to leave. And it's just a churn and burn game. It doesn't mean it's the wrong game to play. I wasn't a fan of that game. It's not the game I played, but it is a game that is played and it does have, it is a model. There's another model maybe in the middle that we'd call more of like a, a team ridge, right? It's not really that brokerage model I just explained. It's more of a, okay, there's going to be, um, a split to the agent, it's going to be pretty good so that I have enough money coming in as the owner to spend and really kind of add some value to the agents, maybe in the form of a office, some marketing, an admin team, some leads, and maybe a little bit of accountability, but they're kind of on their own too. They're building their own business within my business. And so the margins are a little bit higher. You have a little higher profit margin. And your mentality might be more in that scenario is probably more like what you were explaining, which is, you know, come build your business within my business. And I'm going to provide you with all the support you need to do that really well. In fact, way better you could at 100% model. Uh, there's another model as well. And that's on the other end of the spectrum, I would say, which is, uh, you know, more of a... Um, well, it's a really high profit margin, team leader person more involved in the business, uh, and their team members are more almost like employees in the sense that they do what they need to do when they when they need to do it. And if they left, we just replace them with someone else. The, the, the clients are the company's clients, not the agent's clients. The, uh, you know, the uh, expense models a, a little bit higher, but the splits to the agents are a little bit lower. So here's the key, I think, with all of that is that, you know, you have an economic model that you, you, you've got to model your following, whichever one of those it is or something in between so that, you know, okay, if I'm going to pay out this much to the agents, I know how much I have left to spend and I know what I'm going to be netting. And now, you know, kind of how you need to approach those agents when you go to make that value proposition we were just talking about the value proposition on my team was much different than the value proposition on your team, which is much different than the value proposition on a, a brokerage style team. And so I think that's the key is what model are you building and then formulate your valuation to those agents based on the value you're bringing them, you know? But the, the mistake I see a team leaders make here 
is they'll create a value proposition that offers a ton of stuff to the agent, meaning they're going to be spending a ton of money, but they have splits that are more like a model where they are going to provide tons of money. And so now they have no profit mm. and they're stuck now in production. And what I see this all the time, because I did it too early on, is that their personal production ends up paying for all the stuff that they think they need to provide the agent in order to recruit agents. And so that's what we want to avoid. And I th you, if you think about as a team leader, Andy, what is your unique selling proposition? What is your true value proposition as the leader? What's the real value you provide? And what we find and what I've found is the leaders that understand their core competency, what they're bringing to the organization, isn't everything. They're not trying to do everything, but they're really good at something. And that could be marketing, could be lead generation and marketing. Like they're a big brand in their marketplace, right? They're on billboards or they're on, they're willing to do videos. I mean, that's a big one. Like a leader that's willing to do video, agents will join you because they don't willing to do video. Yes, right. And they, they the value proposition you bring to them is you're de demonstrating you have courage, mm -hmm. right? You're willing to put yourself out there for them to get business. They know they need to do video. They're just not willing to do it. So they're going to join you because you do video. Right. And John teach, taught that to everybody across North America. And everyone knows it works for agent attraction, but not everyone's willing to do it. Like the medium's the message there. If you do a video, you're demonstrating to the agents, join me and I'll do video for you. See, a lot of people join you because they don't want to be you. Right. They're joining, you because, they're joining you because of what you're doing so they don't have to do it. Another right. one another one for me that I, I is a value prop that people don't realize they have is you're a rainmaker. Typically, a team leader is a rainmaker. Mm-hmm. And they want you, and part of being a rainmaker, would you agree, Andy, is you're really good at closing the deal. Sure. You know how you're direct, you're a high D, you can get in there and make the deal happen. So your value prop may be when they got a lead on the line or they got a client on the line, you step in and close it. Right. And I think a lot of people don't realize that that they want you to come in there and close the deal sometimes. Now you need to teach them how to close deals. But, you know, even me at this point out of production for seven years, if there's a, if there's an opportunity for me to move the needle, right, truly move the needle in 15 seconds, one email, one text message it, as the owner, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make that impact. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Or save the deal that's fallen through. I get all the- Oh, for sure. I'm, Someone's not happy. There's conflict. Right. I'm willing to face conflict. Right. And it could be as simple as handling a price reduction that ends up getting the listing sold that they couldn't have otherwise gotten or teaching them to preemptively schedule price reductions that they would have never thought of before they joined your team, but you teach them to do it. So there's all those kind of deal saving things that they aren't even aware of. The hard part though is how do you articulate that to them? I know I struggled with that. It's kind of like, well, you just got to join me and see. Yeah, it's a, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a re, that's a but in a lot of cases play. they will, for sure. It's probably more of a retention play than anything, or you know, people are you're going to get referrals because you have an agent come up, come join your team, and like you're right, they like, well, this bro this broker is different. Now, I I think everyone should think about this as a team leader. You need to think about yourself as the broker owner. Do you see that? How do you see the mindset, Andy, with people that are the broker owners, independents versus the people that are team leaders? That that they have a bigger brand. Like like we're we're brand agnostic at reside, right? right? So are you. You work with it's oh, yeah. me, real, remax, independent, right? So do we. Yep. Yep. But what's the mindset? It's a you good question. You, you know, like, because I yeah, I mean, I think I was an independent brokerage. I, you know, I started at Global Banker, went to Rebacks, was an independent broker. Um, you know, 
so I may have had that different mindset that I wasn't even aware of. To me, it, it was business owner mindset. I mean, and I think that's really the best way to describe it is, mm-hmm. is I saw myself in different roles in the business. For example, when I was an agent, even when I was still the owner of the brokerage or leader of the team, if I still did a deal. When I was doing the deal, I saw myself as an agent. When I was leading a sales manager, sales meeting, I saw myself as the sales manager team leader. When I was dealing with something else at a brokerage level, uh, whatever that would have been, uh, I saw myself as the business owner. Maybe that was when I was dealing with the financials. I saw myself in that business owner role. And so I think it's important we see kind of what role, the different roles we're in. We pay ourselves accordingly. We also look at the business in a different perspective when we're in that different, those different seats, for sure. It, it's like... In different scenarios, what hat are you wearing? Yeah. What 100%. role are you? You And I think as a, a team leader, broker, owner, you're wearing many different hats. And so mm. being, know how to context switch is one way to think about, it. you know, know the context and wear the right hat. So if I'm doing a training, I'm wearing the training, coaching, leading hat. And I don't want to confuse them with the broker, owner hat or the, the top agent hat. Right. I don't want to confuse them. If they're, if they're coming to me with a question about a contract or an agreement, I'm wearing the designated broker, broker Mm -hmm. managing hat, even though that's not, maybe there's somebody above me. Right. And I would, I would just caution people too. When you're like, well, just call the designated broker. Like if you're at a brokerage and you're just always deferring to some other person outside your organization, I, that for me in control, I don't know about that one. Well, control and value. Think about it. If all of a sudden you're deferring them to other people for all these things, they're going to be like, well, what am I with this guy for or this gal? You know, I just go to the broker. Maybe I should just join the broker. So, yeah, I think the more, I mean, it's all about retaining value because the more value you can create and or retain, the more value they'll see in, in you. Somebody told me once, and, and to me it made sense, value unarticulated, I don't think unarticulated is even a word, but that's what they said. Value unarticulated is value unappreciated. Where can we take something we're already doing? Like you were saying, we have a broker owner, but we can act as that broker owner and think about things like the broker owner um, and show up like the broker owner for our team. And if we have somebody that's there that could do that, uh, because we're trying to articulate more value because we want our team members to appreciate it. So maybe a good question to ask is, where in our business is there value that we are not articulating well would cost us nothing to start articulating it well or even just identifying it and could add value to our team members that they don't even know exists yeah and you where know? and where has that value emerged that you can then share with the whole team so if you can like right. if people can see value vicariously through someone else Share it. I'll give you an example. You know, over last week, I had an agent that made a deal happen and they made that deal happen through training and guidance and mentorship. She had never done a land deal before. And so she had questions and our team was able to answer those questions and guide her to put together a land deal. She was excited. Well, guess what I'm talking about at the next team meeting? I'm talking about what she learned. Well, I'm actually having her speak and say, what did you learn? How did you get that information? What questions did you have? How did you get the answers? And people are seeing like, whoa, this environment and team was able to get her in the right position and make a deal happen that guess what? If she was on her own, wouldn't have happened. Not because of the lead, not because there was an absence of a lead, because there was there would not have been that community or yeah a, a well of resources that she could extract and make it happen because time kills deals like she didn't have those people were in town for 24 hours mm-hmm. as when they leave town it's gone and she made it happen because she was able to like get um her questions answered it's it's so true i mean we all i think sometimes as the team leader we think it's all on us to provide all this value when the real value is the collective whole. I mean, I think of John, John talks about this all the time where he says like, I'm not the one 
who's going to solve all your business problems. But guess what? I know who to put in a room with you to help you solve all of the business problems that you have at the highest level possible. And so it's maybe us as team leaders humbling ourselves enough to really realize that the collectible is way more powerful than we could ever be, but we're assembling that. Um, I think that's huge. I think of any, it's same, same goes for a real estate coach. I mean, I, lots of different coaches I've had throughout the years. And honestly, when I look back on it, the masterminds I was in with those coaching groups was way more valuable and powerful than the actual consultations with the coach themselves. Although they were helpful, the real value came from being in groups like that. And so, yeah, we need to explain that to our agents as well, because we're essentially creating a little mini mastermind. It also is one of the reasons we have to be careful about who we bring into that group. If, if we have, imagine you're an agent new to the market and you're thinking about joining a team or, or going to an independent brokerage and you're comparing teams and one just has a bunch of low producing agents, they might have a ton of them. And then a different team has a few, but they're all high producers. There's so much power in being part of that group. People just innately understand without even being explained that there's so much more value in that. So numbers aren't always the key, you know? No, you, you nailed it. Like uh, oftentimes when I would advise people on getting a coach, like what coach should I hire? I was like, well, there's the coach that's going to give you information or you're going to have questions and he's going to be, he or she's going to be a sounding board. But I would go with the coach that has the resources and the connections because I've always got more value out of the event long-term out of the network of the coach and the resources of the coach than the actual coach. Now, and we're starting to see that a lot at the reside platform where, you know, we brought a, a new team, a, a top team in, in Florida, central Florida joined and they're really ambitious. Tanya and Chet, they're just tons of energy, lots of growth, huge upside. And she reached out to, with me, to me over the weekend. She had some questions and I could answer it. Andy. I know I could answer it, but. Mm -hmm. I knew there was somebody in the organization, the community could do it at a higher level, mm -hmm. right? And where I actually learned it. So, right, right. you know, I sent, you know, if it's bookkeeping and financial, I send them to you, Andy. If right, it was right. follow-up boss automations, I send it to Preston or Sunit or, or Chris Snow in the group, right? Mm -hmm. And if I were to answer it, a lot of times here on the team, if I have the answer and I answer it, right out of the gate because it's easy. I rob someone of the opportunity to teach it. And we know it's a cliche to teach it as a know it, but I'm, I'm robbing them of going and having that experience. And also like the person that teaches the fulfillment you get from helping somebody is amazing. And you feel smart, you feel needed. Right. right? So I, I think about those things too. Um, it's hard though, when you're a team leader to slow down enough to do that sometimes. And I think that's the challenge is these team leaders are just, it'd be quicker if I just answered it quicker, if I just handled it quicker, if I just deal with it myself and we gotta, we gotta like you slow down enough to think who knows this better? How could I help them become a leader in my organization? How, you know, whatever, and, and really guide, become the guide and not the hero. Like we've talked about. Before. And it's also one just don't pass the buck now all true. there's diff there's a difference between yes. passing the buck and delegation or empowering someone else to take it right and i think it's just the intent behind it right and so yes. a lot of times it's probably better to how do i ha help them problem solve that what questions can i ask them because they probably already know the answer right now maybe they're not as sure they have the right answer well, I mean, I always did the three answer rule in my organization. When anybody came to me, they had to come with the three potential answers. Guarantee one of them was always the right one. They just didn't have the confidence to choose it. And that's what they're coming to you for is actually the confidence to say that's the right one. But pretty soon they stopped coming because they knew and they got that confidence to pick the right one. So, so how, do, how, how does that framework work? How, how's the three answer rule framework? Well, whenever, yeah, I mean, and I actually had a sign on my door that said, if you're coming to me with a problem, make sure you have your three solutions ready, right? Like they'd come in and they were trained, the agents and my staff was trained. If they come into that room, 
they better have, otherwise I'd turn around and say, go figure it out and come back when you have some ideas. I was not going to just take their monkey and solve it for them. And if I did do that, and, I, and here's the thing, like everyone, I, I did it wrong for a while until I realized this ain't going to work. Once I had 12, 15 people on my team and they were come, it was all day long. This was like a major issue in my business was how do we get, and I started by just not coming into the office. Well, that wasn't the solution. I needed to be there mm. for them, especially before I had the right people in place to lead the business. But come to my office. Here's the problem. Great. What do you think are the three options here? Which one do you think is the right one? I agree. Right? Or, or, or you would say, well, let's think about that. If you went down that road, what would happen? Could there be another option that would be better? Right. So you're even though I knew the whole time what the right one was, and chances are they did too, it's slowing down enough to help guide them and again be that guide and not the hero. That reminds me of a book, uh, Carol Dweck's Mindset. Hmm. And I you know, I don't know if you had the chance to pick that one up. It's no. Carol Dweck, C A R O L D W E C K, I believe, mindset. And it's about basically rewarding or acknowledging people for their effort, not the results. Mm -hmm. And for not telling people they're smart, but telling them that, you know, their effort or their problem solving was what you really liked, right? Like, I, because what happens when people are, think they need to be smart or they think they need to know everything when they don't, they hide it or when they finally fail, they fail hard, mm -hmm. right? Because it's all about this perfection. And so it's a great book. I think everyone needs to read it, whether you're father, right. mother, teacher. Actually, it was given to me by my sister, who's a teacher. And it was- Oh, I could see it applying to, as you're talking about, I'm like, man, I need to work on that with my kids for sure. So, so I got it. So yeah, with my daughter, five and a half years old, Adeline, it's like, you know, rewarding her for not how fast she did the assignment, but maybe like, like for, for her working through a problem she had a hard time with. Mm. Right. Or, you know, not that she's smart, but what was smart was not giving up right. and, and maybe having to go back and try it later. Right. So staying with it longer. I think Albert Einstein had a quote, something along the lines of like, I'm not the smartest person in the world, which he was. I'm just willing to, I'm just willing to work on problems longer. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah. whoa, I didn't right. know that about mathematics. I thought you just knew it or you didn't. Right. So the point I'm making with agents is this. If they, your, your framework on three solutions is awesome. So if they come to me and they have the solution, wow, you have the solution. You have the three solution. Awesome. You have the solution. Perfect. Like that's a smart solution. But what's more impressive is how did you come up with that? Mm -hmm. That's why I want to know, what was your decision-making? What did you explore? How did right. you arrive there? And they're like, well, I don't know. I asked around, I thought about it. I did this and I would reward that. I was like, yeah, oh, great. Uh, I really love how you took the time to do these steps and work on it. Yeah. And then talk about adding value to the community at the next sales meeting. You have them say, Hey, Johnny came up with some solutions to a problem. Johnny, why don't you share what your strategy was around finding those solutions? I mean, you could just add value. There's so many places we could add value like that to our team members. Here's the thing I find though, Nick, the hardest, I think so many team leaders know what we're talking about. It's being able to slow down enough mm. to do that because we're doing a million things. We, we may have the wrong economic model. We're not making money like we feel like we should be to be able to pay our bills like we used to when we were in production heavy because we're shifting to a team model and running it like a business and our, our income goes. And then there's stress at home and all these. And so we're just like, solve the problem so I can get the next, my personal deal done or I can get the next problem in my business solved. And so to me, not to make it all about money always, but that that it's it's the reason that money causes so many problems in relationships and things and in business is because we don't have it dialed in. If you get the money dialed in and you can breathe a little bit, all of a sudden you have time to pour into these agents, add more value. But if you don't and you're stuck in production and you're swamped all the time, you're going to be impatient, quick to just solve the problem. And you're not going to be building a true culture community like we talked about. So 
I hate to say it, but it all goes back to the money. <laughs> well, that's interesting because we all want to make more money, right? We want more. We want to keep most of the money, and it kind of leads me to this. So, Andy does. Andy, Ellen, and all Simple Numbers, Mallory, the awesome team, they do, they run the financials for our Reside platform clients. And it's funny, Andy, like 30 minutes ago, I was just reviewing the financial reports with one of our clients Mm -hmm. and slowing down and taking 30 minutes to review line by line last month. So it's October 2nd, as we were doing this, we reviewed September's your listing income, your buyer income, where did it come from? What was the source? Who made the deal happen of your agents? How much are you bringing into the company versus your agents? How much did you pay out to your agents from the income they brought in? What's left over, which we know that's gross profit. And then we just go like expenses. Can I cut anything? Where can we trim the fat? Where do we double down on what's working? Right. And I don't know, you've done a lot of these reviews with people. Right. The the clarity and sense of relief is, I think, is the biggest value when you look at the numbers. It is. It's funny. People, this isn't natural to our human nature, but with structure comes freedom. Mm. And it's no different than with our money. We stress about money when we don't know what's going on and we don't feel in control. But then we avoid it. Right? Because it brings us stress. But the reality is if we can get a handle on it, the freedom comes by having structure, you know, around that. And I think that's, that's the key. I think it's also important that we keep it super simple. If, if it's complicated, that's where we, we struggle. I mean, Alex Hormozzi just put this on his X account or Twitter account. It says, you don't become advanced by doing fancy stuff. You get there by doing all the obvious beginner stuff you knew you should be doing but aren't. And Mm. with financials, it's no different, right? And so uh, I think those are some of the keys I'm finding as as we're working with more and more teams on on dialing that in. And what's amazing about having a financial reporting rhythm, I like rhythm, is it's every month. It's every month. It's every quarter. Right. We review it. And you, you, you make adjustments. And, and it doesn't have to be boring. I think that's the key, right? I used to dread looking at the financials in my business. Absolutely dread them. And I'd always come out more frustrated, but it doesn't have to be like, gag me, this is boring. I'm dreading this meeting. If it's done right, if it's done, like you said, rhythmically, right? Uh, and you can pull strategy out of them. I think that's the key. What strategic moves can we make in our business that we can get excited about based on the financials, which sometimes is hard to understand that you could get them out of your financials, but it's it's all right there. It, it's, it, it takes, here's what a lot of team leaders, broker owners do that don't look at numbers is they make emotional decisions. Sure. And they make emotional decisions. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like it's working. I feel like it's not working. I feel like I yeah. need to buy more Zillow or cut Zillow or- or I feel like that guy on stage or gal on stage who said this awesome new thing they're doing is working. I'm not even going to check into the ROI or whether it's actually proven. I'm just, it made me feel like I'm missing out. I better do it. I'm going to spend the money. Or, yeah, so I mean, I agree. That's just huge. Or they follow that up with, Nick, what I call bank balance accounting, which comes from Mike McKillop's Profit First book. He calls that same too. As business owners, we all, do, most of us, do bank balance accounting or bank balance strategy. Do I have money in the bank account at this moment? I feel good. New lead source paid for. Do I have money in the bank account? No. Okay. Maybe I won't do that this month. That's, that's the strategy. And that is the, that's how you get in trouble because like you said, our emotions are, we're in a great mood when there's money in the bank account. We're not in such a good mood when it's not. And we have to be careful about that. Bank balance accounting. Right. Is there bank, money in the bank or isn't there? Bank balance strategy? Mm, not so Scary good. Scary stuff. You, you, yeah. know what, you know what bank balance strategy has really kind of threw me for a tailspin? Is when I didn't account for the taxes that need to come out every quarter. So, man, my bank balance is feeling great. And then all of a sudden, boom. Wham. Yep. Bank balance is down or giant credit card. 
account balance gets wiped out because I have I'm a I pay all my business expenses go on credit cards, most of them, and then I I pay my credit card off every month. I've done that for twelve years, right? Automatic, the full balance every single time. Yep, you know, and it's good for points. There's different ways to do points, different things like that. But you know, that that's just one strategy we use. Um, and I and it's I think it's key on credit cards. I'd like to get your your thing on credit cards, and we can kind of. Uh, get you on the pod another time sure. is definitely have a business a credit card solely for business right that uh yes uh well I, I hate to say i personally hate to say yes i think that is a strategy that can work if you're very disciplined but i i i'm fearful i personally zero credit cards in my entire life okay yes i miss out on certain things uh, points and flights and all these things, but, but I can only miss out on a Dave Ramsey. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's how I got my start in understanding financials long ago was I had a ton of debt and I was thinking of money as in the wrong way. I think for disciplined people who understand money that can be disciplined around doing what you're doing is paying that off that here's where they'll make the mistake. Oh, that new lead source I heard about at that conference is so good, but it's expensive. But you know what? I have money on my bank, on my credit card. I don't have money in the bank account. Let's just swipe the credit card. Next month should be good because if I do this lead source, I'm going to sell five more homes. Probably that's what the person on stage says. So I'm going to go ahead and swipe that credit card. It doesn't happen. They've got $20,000 balance on their credit card. They can't pay off. That's what I get when I get fearful. Now, if, you have, if you're disciplined, you got three to six months of reserves in an account, personally and for your business, you pay yourself a consistent salary so you can live off your salary. Your company's running a profitable model. You've shown months of consistency. And you're a disciplined person that is going to have a system around paying off your credit card every month. Then I think it can be a good thing. So we just have to be aware that there are people who don't have those things in place that could really get in trouble quickly with credit cards. Understood. That's my that's my two-minute spiel on, on that. I, I love that spiel. And there's a lot okay. we can pull out of that. Yeah. Number one, number one that's pulled out of that is pick up on what Andy just said. Three month, six month reserves for your business. Now, when I'm calculating my three month reserves, Andy, what am I, how do I arrive at that number? Part of this is going to depend on your tolerance level for risk, right? Some people say, well, should I have three or six months? You decide minimum three, probably no more than six. Well, if you don't have three, start there. Start there. Yeah. Right. Start with a thousand bucks if you have to, whatever. But three to six months of business reserves, I always felt comfortable on the higher end. I just did. Personally, it let me sleep at night a little bit easier, especially in a market in Minnesota where winters were dry, summers were heavy, very cyclical, and I never kind of knew what month was going to come and what was going to happen. But yet my expenses were the same pretty much throughout the year. Secondly, I mean, I would look at not your costs of goods sold. You're not going to have three to six months of reserves on the amount you're paying your agents. Why? Because if you're not paying your if you're not doing a deal, you don't have that cost going out. So any costs of goods sold, sign installs, like things that are associated with the transaction, you don't got to save for because it's not going to be there if the home doesn't sell. But your fixed expenses, right? Like That's really sell, the you, easiest you way to sell. You're going to sell zero homes over the next three months. Yeah. What's your monthly nut going to look like? And do I have three nuts saved up? There you go. <laughs> 100%. 100%. And and once you have three months, go to six months. I've I've consistently done six months or more. And if I feel like the feel, if I'm looking at our cash flow, our pendings, our listings, our agent, my agent count, I'm like, okay, we're growing. Okay. I'm going to do a owner distribution or I'm going to pull some money out for personal. I'm going to pay myself now and bring it down to six months. And then I'm going to build it back up to 12 or 18 months. And then maybe once I build it up to 12 months, wouldn't that be amazing, right? Like 500000 a million dollars in the bank, maybe is a little too much to be sitting in your bank. But I can take a risk, right? Maybe maybe I'd be sure. a radio, a, a, a marketing play that I wanted to test because I have yeah. an extra capital. Like I'm taking a risk, Andy, above my, above my reserve is when I'm taking risks. Agreed, agreed, you know. Um, or what is a system? Agreed. When you say agreed, there's always a lot. I think the way, here's what I, I, I always agree with people who have a system that works for them financially. 
if it well, works how, for you, how do you don't screw it? with it. Well, here's, I think a little bit more systematically. Mm-hmm. So I'm a fan of the profit first model, right? I'm a fan of paying yourself first. It's like being on an airplane. What do they tell you to do when you lose pressure in the cabin? Put your mask on first. You talked about this, I think, in your thing, but because you can't help anybody else. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Until you've done that. And so I think the same goes for us in our businesses. If we are not paying ourselves. Now, I didn't say pay yourself a ridiculous amount of money. Pay yourself the right amount based on your revenue. And there's really three ways you should pay yourself. Ooh. We probably don't have time to get into all of the of those three things. But the point is, pay yourself first. Then you know what you have left to run your business off of. And so as far as reserves goes, Nick, I'm a believer that every quarter, at the end of every quarter, you should be paying yourself a quarterly profit distribution that is 50% of the profit your business brought in that last quarter. And by profit, I mean after you paid your agents, your broker, and all of your expenses. The other 50% should go into an account until you have that three to six months worth of reserves saved. Once it's there at six months or whatever months you're comfortable with, now 100% of that profit, quarterly profit distribution, could be paid to you personally. That's your money for taking the risk and being the business owner, just like you would if you had stock in a business. Now, if you said, I want to, I know I'm going to have investments coming up into my business in the future, you could start to build that up to six, eight, 12 months. But the point is every quarter you should be paid as an owner of your business. Otherwise, guess what? It's not profit. If at the end of the quarter you say, I made 10 grand in profit this quarter or a hundred grand in profit this quarter or a million grand in profit this quarter, but you put it right back into the business, it wasn't profit. You spent it. Profit is money that you pay yourself. That's how I see profit. If it isn't that, then it, it goes right back in the business. You're quote unquote reinvesting. You're reinvesting it back in the business. So it, but, it was- but my opinion, and I hope I'm, I realize people disagree with this too. My opinion is that reinvested profit is never, it was never profit. You just spent it. It's now an expense. Well, so be careful in my opinion with that saying I had 50% net profit, but I reinvested 25% back in the business. Well, then you really had 25% net profit. Because you spent the other 25% on stuff. Now, I get it. It's an investment. You're putting it in the business, but you spent it. So be careful with that well, mentality. Well, well, let's think about that for a second. So let's imagine I, I made a $100,000 profit and it was a 50% profit margin. Oh, look at me. I got 50%. Yeah. And then I take 50 of that thousand and I buy a car for the business. Okay. okay. I reinvest it. I actually had 25% profit margin. And now I have a, or, or uh, I have 25% profit margin. Now I have a $50,000 asset on my balance sheet. Sure. sure. That's a car. Yes. Right. So that's what, that's what Andy's saying. He's saying I reinvested in something that now is showing up somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, I am. I think I was thinking more, be careful with where you reinvest that. If someone says, I'm going to take the other 25% and invest it in a lead source, a non-asset expense, and that lead source doesn't go anywhere, or even if I close a few deals on it or whatever, even if it's a good ROI, be careful because we can play that game all the time. And then all of a sudden we're down to almost no profit in our business because we're quote unquote reinvesting for the future. My, my, my challenge for people is be careful with that. It's a slippery slope because when does that end? Is there a point now where it's like, okay, I don't have to reinvest anymore. I just am at my 50% net profit or 25% net profit or whatever. No, it never ends if we have that mentality. I think you'd be better off saying, no, I'm in the scenario you gave, Nick, I am 25% profitable. That's the profitability mark I'm shooting for. Everything else I'm spending in the business and now you're at least clear with yourself that you're a 25% profit business. But if to say I'm a 50% profit business, but I reinvested 25% back into the business, well, you didn't, you just spent it. Now, if you're buying an asset, maybe a bill, you know, whatever it is, a bunch of, an asset that, that isn't just an expense, it's different. It's a different scenario, but still be careful with that in my opinion. Oh, know? for sure. And you can yes. buy, you can buy leads. You can reinvest and have buy leads. Okay. What you've done is you've increased your inventory of bought leads. Now, if you start thinking about your leads as thing assets you've already paid for that just haven't converted, 
you might realize, wait a second, I don't need more inventory. I already have tons of inventory. So why am I going, right. why am I reinvesting money for more inventory that I still don't have? So if you were a retail store and you were selling jeans and t-shirts right. and yeah. you made some money and you have a warehouse full of more jeans and t-shirts, like all you got to do is bring them to the showroom floor. Are you going to go buy more jeans and t-shirts if you have a warehouse full of them? No, you'd be like, well, we don't need to buy more. This is move more front. So as a, if it's you just, yeah, <laughs> it's such a great way to see it. I've never heard of anybody talk as leads as inventory as assets like that, but it's so true. And this is why we make some mistakes as team leaders, because we don't look at it that way. And like you said, we have a bunch of jeans, but we buy more jeans because we have profit. And it's like, well, we got all these jeans to sell now. No, these are, let's these just are focus on jeans. selling what they're better jeans. They're newer jeans. Yeah, right. They're newer jeans. They're not the joke jeans, right? Uh, we need to do a better job of leading our team and putting in systems and accountability to help our agents and our ISAs convert at a higher level. That's that's where the profitability is at. It's not taking our money, our profit, and reinvesting in more jeans, right? So yeah, I agree. Sometimes you need more inventory. Sometimes you do. And so I, I think if it, when you think about leads as inventory, it changes the way you think about your business. Yes. But you better have three to six months of reserves before you're, quote unquote, reinvesting profit, in my opinion. I think that reinvestment of profit needs to be to build up those reserves. And guess what? Life is just sweeter when you have that money sitting there. You, you don't take those deals you know as the team leader you shouldn't be touching. You don't you don't um, miss your kid's soccer game because you might lose out on an opportunity somewhere. Like, no, you, you, you sleep better at night and life is just sweeter when you know, money doesn't become our master and, 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 and we make it our slave by controlling it and have a system and a process. And, you know, it's biblical stuff. I mean, that's just what I, the way I see it. And I think it's so important if you can't tell by my tone. <laughs> well, there's love it. There's no better way to end this episode. And it's always a pleasure to have you on. I always learn so much. Um, Likewise. I feel like we, we share the same values when it comes to this stuff. And that's why we have this podcast to contribute to everyone here listening. If you like it, um, please download other episodes. If you haven't listened to Andy's first episode, and uh, if you want to explore reside, we're here. This is why we're doing reside. So people can have this level of clarity and freedom as well. So Andy, thank you so much. We'll have you on again soon. Sounds good. I appreciate it. Bye-bye.